Really glad that y'all are here this morning. We got a lot of great things going on like we heard about already. And uh, I hope that you're going to plan on taking advantage of those things because they are there for your advantage and for, for you to enjoy learning and growing and, and all that sort of a thing. All right, we're studying the Bible. We're in Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you might, might want to get ready there. As you're getting ready, I want to just I want to share kind of an unusual memory that I have. Okay, and this is going to lead into what we're talking about. My, uh, I have an unusual memory of my dad. It, it's been a lot of years since my dad's been with us. And, and one funny memory I have of my dad is that he used to enjoy watching a TV show that some of you remember, remember called Hee Haw. The fact that you're laughing, that makes me feel good. So for those of you that don't know what Hee Haw is, it's a, it's a country comedy slash variety show where there was just a lot of country music but dumb humor and sometimes combined. And uh, on that show, there was one particular song that has stuck with me all these years, and I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to read for you some of the verse, some of the verse that comes from one of these songs they used to sing. And they would say this, they would say, gloom, despair, can you quote it with me, an agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all, gloom, despair, and agony on me. And they make jokes about that sort of thing. But let me ask you something, do you ever feel that way? I mean, do you ever feel sometimes like, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all? You know, there's a, another saying that somebody said once, and I thought it was kind of clever, and so it, it kind of goes like this. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean the world's not really out to get you. <laughs> I mean, it might just be good planning, you know what I mean? And sometimes we feel that way. Sometimes we feel like the walls are closing in around us, and it's just hard to really manage through the difficulties that seem to hit all of us at different ways at different times. Well, the Bible's very clear in Galatians chapter 1 when it calls this world a present evil world. That's the world that we live in. It's present evil world. And we become so used to having problems in our lives, you'd think that by now we'd figure out how to deal with them. But that's not always the case. The Apostle Paul certainly was no stranger to suffering in the ministry. And if you've got your finger in Romans chapter 8, just hang on to that, maybe flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I just want to remind you of some of the difficulties that the human author of these verses of Scripture has gone through in his life, certainly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen. In perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. That's a tough life. In weariness and painfulness and watchings often in hunger and thirst and fastings often in cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. And so through all that, what we find is that the Apostle Paul has figured out how to have the proper perspective on problems. And that's the title I've given today's message as we look at a handful of verses in Romans chapter 8. The proper perspective on problems. If you're there in 2 Corinthians, 
Uh, you might want to look down in chapter number 12. In verses 9 and 10, Paul kind of comes to some conclusions. He says, for example, in verse 9, He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest on me. And he refers to this power of Christ resting on him because he learned to not rely on his flesh. He learned how to walk in the Spirit. And that's kind of been our theme coming through Romans chapter 8. It goes on, it says, Therefore, I, he says, I can take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And so Paul figured out this concept. And the concept, I put it in your notes, says this, that trouble in your life is not defeat. Just because you have trouble, just because you have problems, just because you're going through a tough time does not mean that you are defeated. And we shouldn't consider it that way and we shouldn't consider ourselves as beaten down and defeated. So if you have that in mind, you can turn back to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read five verses starting in 26. We'll go through 30 and then we'll study it a little bit. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So with this in mind, let's just go to the Lord. Let's pray. Let's get our hearts ready, and then we'll see what he's got to say. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful that even though this is a present evil world, even though we have troubles and difficulties, you do give us the right perspective. You give us the strength. When we are weak, then we can be strong through the power of Christ. And that's my prayer, Lord, that you would speak to all of our hearts. Lord, certainly in a room this size, there's many people who have come in this morning heavy-hearted. Various different levels of problems that they're dealing with, and they are very real. And I pray that they would find your answer for their particular situation this morning. And for the rest of us that maybe things are going pretty good and we haven't had trouble, help us to learn these lessons now because tomorrow or the next day, it's coming because it comes on all of us at some time. So thank you for your word. Teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, a couple of things I want to start with, and we've got four main points we're going to look at, but uh, the first couple really are our review from before. And the first one, thing I want us to see about problems, we have to get our right perspective the first thing is, is that problems are temporary. Problems are temporary. And we talked about this last week. So very briefly, let me just remind you of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, where Paul says this, For our light affliction. Now remember that list we just read? That's Paul's affliction he went through, and he calls it light in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For our light affliction, notice, which is but for a moment. 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. That's just a moment in comparison to eternity, right? Worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, here it is, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so he had the right perspective. He understood that even though the difficulties happen, compared to eternity, they're really nothing. 
And that's what we saw last week in verse number 18 of Romans chapter 8, where it says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And we looked at that in some detail. And so the whole idea is this. Whatever we're going through, okay, and it's not that it's not real. It is. It's just not worthy to be compared with the level of glory and the things God's working through those times that we understand. Now, there's a little phrase that appears in your Bible 453 times. Thank God for computers. We can add those up just like that. There's a little phrase, and it's used in all kind of different contexts, but I want to use it in this particular context just to kind of help you to keep the right perspective on your problems being temporary. And the little phrase is this, it came to pass. You ever read that? You're reading along in the Bible and it says, and it came to pass on such and such a time, and I use that phrase, it came to pass. I just want you to think about it this way. Things come into your life, but they'll also pass. They will also pass on through your life. It's okay, really. We can have the right perspective. Why? Because our problems and things that we deal with actually are temporary. They're just temporary. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a verse that has meant a lot to me through my life and helped me through a lot of difficult times, says this. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Amen? You believe that? God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. If you're a Christian here today, and if you are going through an extremely difficult time, my heart goes out to you. And if you have entertained the thought I just can't bear it another day. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is in the Bible for you to remind you that if you are going through it, God has already determined that you are able to bear it. I've been through times in my life when I was sure I couldn't take it anymore. And God reminded me of this verse. And he said, Jeff, if you could not take it, I would not have allowed it to happen to you. But since I have allowed it to happen... You can handle it. You can, through my strength, do that. So our problems are temporary. The next thing I want us to see is that our problems, although temporary, they are real. They are real. And this is an important thing to realize. Look, in the moment that we're living now, and that's maybe what some of you were thinking while I was talking just a minute ago, we feel them. I mean, they do make our life actually quite difficult. And our reaction to the problems, especially as Christians, and we saw this last week when we looked in Romans chapter 8 and verses 22 and 23, that we as Christians, the Bible uses the word the creature, talking about us, groans in anticipation for the glory that's coming. And so we now suffer through the challenges of life, and in our spirit, in our hearts, we groan, and it uses that phrase a couple of times about us as believers in Christ, that the difficulties that happen to us daily cause us to just have this anguish of spirit and groan. And it's not just us, but it even says that the whole creation, referring literally to nature, And all of nature itself groans in anticipation for this time when ultimately nature will be redeemed and brought back to its original state like the Garden of Eden. And so all of us and all of nature, we groan inside of us waiting for this ultimate redemption of our bodies and of the entire physical creation. But now if you look at today's text in chapter 8 and verse number 26, it says, Likewise, 
The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. Notice, with groanings. So not only we, not only all of nature, but the Holy Spirit himself groans within himself concerning the infirmities, concerning the difficulties, concerning the problems and the trials that we go through. Listen, sin affects everyone. It affects man and beast. And in a sense, it even affects the Trinity in how the Trinity, the Godhead, reacts and sees us suffer. The Holy Spirit becomes desperate for us. He doesn't like to see us respond carnally to the challenges that are in our life, and he's grieved by that. And unlike Satan, the Holy Spirit takes no pleasure whatsoever in our suffering. The devil takes great pleasure in our suffering. The devil takes great pleasure in the fact that things are going badly. And if there's any way that the devil could ever get at God, it is only through us that he makes God's children suffer. You who are parents know you would rather suffer than to have your children suffer. And the devil can't do anything to God, so he does stuff to us with God's permission at some level for a greater cause, which we will see before we're done today. But there is this groaning. I want you to get the context and the connection between the human creation and the natural creation and the Holy Spirit all groan as a result of the difficulties we go through. But not only that, but Jesus also groans when we respond carnally to difficulty. Now I'm going to remind you, we're going to look quickly in John chapter 11. And John chapter 11 is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And if you remember that story, of course Jesus was told, he was in another town, that Lazarus was sick. He delayed his return. Lazarus actually dies. He gets there. Everybody's weeping and crying, okay? And he's about to raise him from the dead. But notice here in John chapter 11 and verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And people often attribute that to the fact of Jesus' great love for his friend Lazarus and he died and he was so sad. And I would say that indeed he felt the Um, the suffering and the pain and, and the difficulty that the family was going through to associate with them. But Jesus knew that in just moments he was going to live again, right? And so jump down to verse 37 and 38 of John 11. It says, And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, if you're all that you say you are, how is it possible that you could not have done something to keep Lazarus from dying? But man, now it's too late. I can't believe you didn't do that. That's literally what they're saying. As a result of that response, Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus is groaning in the spirit because of the carnal response of these God followers. He's groaning in the spirit because he desperately wants them to believe what he just had told them. I am the resurrection and the life. Believest thou this? He just told them that, and they are not believing it. They're focusing on the problem. And so it causes even Jesus to groan in his spirit. It's very interesting. Listen, the Holy Spirit feels your pain. If you're going through it today, know this. Take comfort in this. You're not alone. He does feel your pain. Because even though it is temporary, right now, it is real. It really is. 
But I really want to jump in a little harder in point number three. And that's really going to be the, bulk, the first part of our study here in these verses. That problems facilitate prayer. Problems facilitate prayer. Verses 26 and 27. So we see that the Holy Spirit feels your pain and we've got this groaning. And he takes action. And the action that he takes is to pray. Right? It says that he prays for us. He makes intercession for us. It says that on two different occasions in these two verses. And so the first thing I want you to see is that praying helps. Praying really helps. It says that the Spirit helps our infirmities. How? By making intercession for us. Praying really helps. And all through the Bible, the Bible is full of prayers of people who cry out to God in their infirmity, in their distress, in their trouble, and God hears and God delivers. And maybe there is no greater place in all the Bible for a collection of those prayers than in the book of Psalms. Because the book of Psalms is often referred to as a book of prayers. It's also a book of songs. It is, God, it is man's communication with his father, and they are basically lumped into two categories. The Psalms prophetically picture one of two different times, either the time of great tribulation that Israel is going through this tribulation and sorrow and difficulty under great persecution under the Antichrist. Those would be the Psalms that that are crying out in distress, God help, deliver me from mine enemies. Then you have an entirely different group of Psalms that's all about praise and adoration and worship and glory and reigning. Because those are pictures of actually when Christ does return and sets up his thousand-year kingdom on earth and all the creation is just worshiping and glorifying him. And what we find are is that historically, those are the times either when David was being persecuted from Saul, historically that's what was going on when they were written, as David is the primary human author of most of the Psalms, or when David's reigning on the throne and things are going good. And so that's what we see in the book of Psalms. So I just pulled out a few of them so you could look at really quickly because you see this theme over and over and over again. The point is this, praying really helps. It's a natural reaction we have in Psalm 18, 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry came before him even unto his ears. 37, or 34, 17. The righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. 107 verse 6. This is repeated a lot in Psalm 107. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress. Psalm 118.5. I called upon the Lord in distress, and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. So do you know people that are suffering today? Are you aware of others in your social relationships that are really going through a tough time? Man, just pray for them. I mean, really and truly pray for them. I know that frequently it is our Christian response to tell people, I'm praying for you, and God forbid that we don't then pray for them. But praying really helps. It really, really does. If you are the one going through trouble, and people tell you, I am praying for you, thank them. Because praying really helps The Holy Spirit, what does he do when he sees us going through it? He groans and he prays for us. And the Bible says that is a help. That is a help to you. And that's what we should do. Samuel had the right attitude. I kind of referred to it. 1 Samuel 12, 23. He says this. 
Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. So praying really works. I mean, it really helps, and it really works. That's the next point. It really helps, but not only does it help, it helps because it works. So in verse 27, it says that he maketh intercession, here's the phrase, according to the will of God. Now, where do we find the will of God? We find the will of God in the Word of God. That's pretty clear. If you come to this church, you know that. We find the will of God in the Word of God, and the proof for that is very easy. Psalm 145 and verse 18 says this, The Lord is nigh or near unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. And the cross-reference would be John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So when we call upon the Lord in truth, when we call upon the Lord in accordance with his word, When we pray according to the will of God, another way that it's phrased in the Bible is in Jesus' name. When you pray in Jesus' name does not mean that the in Jesus' name phrase has to be tacked onto the end for God to hear it. Uh, The in Jesus' name phrase is not the stamp on the envelope. It'll be returned to sender if you don't put the stamp on it. It's not a magic phrase. It means it's according to Jesus' will. That's what it means. Okay, it's according to the will of God. And prayers according to the will of God, in other words, biblical prayers, actually work. They actually get results. Let's look at this a little bit. Here's a problem. While it is understandable and natural for us to cry out to God for help from our troubles, we don't always cry out to God according to his will. Would you agree? Sometimes we just cry out out of our pain, and it's understandable. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's according to his will. If you go back to verse 26, it says that we know not what we should pray for as we ought. So there is a way we should be praying, and there are times when we're not aware of it. And so since we're not aware of it, the Holy Spirit jumps in and he says, I got this. Jeff's not really praying According to God's will, he's praying according to Jeff's will. So, Lord, I got this one. Let me pray for Jeff according to your will. Okay, that's kind of what's going on here. And it makes sense, doesn't it? We don't know how to pray as we always should because frequently we're just too caught up in the pain that comes with suffering. And our natural instinct is self-preservation, right? I mean, even the Apostle Paul, the the walking with God, greatest Christian ever, he wasn't immune to this instinct of self-preservation, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we read verses 9 and 10, but verse 7 and 8 says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. I mean, Paul knew some stuff. He walked with God. There was given to me, notice, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Notice, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice. What did he beseech the Lord three times? That it might depart from me. So Paul is in it and he's got trouble. He's got difficulty. And there's a lot of debate about what that thorn in the flesh really was. For our purposes today, it doesn't matter. All we need to know is that it was a problem. It was a hassle. It was difficult. And what's Paul's immediate reaction? Lord, 
take this thing away from me. Please take this thing away from me. Is that not natural? That's what we always think. That's okay. But we find out that that was Paul's will. And in this particular case, it was not God's will. Because as we read previously in verse 9, And God, he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So God's will for Paul, at that moment anyway, was that he was to continue to suffer for some greater purpose. Paul's will was, I don't want to suffer. Who wants to suffer, right? So we need to learn how to pray according to the will of God, and the good news is if we don't, the Holy Spirit does, okay? And that's really cool. So I want you to think about this, because it does make sense. The Holy Spirit certainly is going to be a more effective prayer than we are, because he knows things we don't know, right? I mean, he sees your trouble like you're not able to see it. He knows the level of strength that you have to be able to hold up under the pressure. You could go to the book of Job. Maybe some of you are reading through our, our Read Through the Bible in a Year program. You're probably in the book of Job or just recently finished it. And, and Job went through it, right? But the Holy Spirit knows what Job could handle, and he went through more than a lot of us could handle probably. The Holy Spirit knows who's watching you as you go through your difficulty. You ever think about that? Sometimes the Lord allows us, there's no sin in our lives. Potentially, you could be going through tough times just because the Lord knows You'll handle it well. And because you have friends who need to see a real Christian really handle something difficult in a biblical way. Because that will be a huge testimony and a witness to them. We don't think that way. We just think about self-preservation. He knows what kind of an example you'll be and how how influential your example will be for future generations because of your infirmities. A lot of you remember I've invited my wife's brother, Arion, to come here and preach for us, and he suffers from a debilitating disease that really hinders his physical mobility and whatnot, and man, have we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that the Lord would take that away from him, and the Lord has not taken that away from him, and uh, yet he still has an effective ministry. Just recently, he and his wife moved back to Albania and are helping the church full-time teaching and doing some great things. And I'm going to tell you, when a guy like that is able to get beyond the very obvious physical difficulties in his life, and, and he's in pain every single day, and still stand for the Lord and preach his word with power and make disciples, those of us who enjoy good health, I, for one, I'm convicted. And I think, wow, what a powerful testimony to motivate me to not look so much in the mirror, to not worry so much about me, but just go serve the Lord. I mean, the Holy Spirit knows these things, and he prays in a way that sometimes is beyond our ability to do so. So here's the lesson. This is in your notes. The more biblical our prayers, the more effective the results of prayer. The more biblical our prayers, the more that we can understand God's will according to God's word and to pray in accordance with what we understand from God's word, the more we will see direct results from our prayers. Sometimes we pray and pray and pray. It doesn't seem like anything's happening. Maybe because our prayers aren't biblical. Because he responds to those who respond in truth. Now, while we are in verse 26 and while we are speaking of what is a biblical prayer, Okay, 
We have to take a minute and look at this phrase in verse 26. It says, The Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And we have to stop for just a second and do a little, a little mini Bible study because there are too many people out in greater Christianity that will take that phrase, the Holy Spirit prays with groanings which cannot be uttered. And they inappropriately apply that, saying that that is the equivalent of what is called today in, in some circles, speaking in tongues. And they say, the Holy Spirit prays through me, I don't understand it, it comes out as some ecstatic, non-language gibberish, and as a res- that's God doing it, I couldn't possibly do it, and you say, how is there a biblical defense for that? And frequently, they go to Romans 8.26, and they will say, that is the Spirit, and He is making groanings, okay? And that's God's way of just speaking back to Himself through the Spirit unto the Father, and they have this whole convoluted plan that, with all due respect, is just nonsense. Because if you just look at the simple words of Scripture, we, we see the connection of groaning even with the creation, with the creature, and the Lord Jesus. But it, but it says right in the text that these groanings, whatever they are, whatever it is the Spirit is doing, they cannot be uttered. Do you see that? So whatever the charismatic, Pentecostal, and it's typically those types of churches that propagate this doctrine, whenever those people stand up and they... they Whatever it is they're doing, they are uttering. Are they not? They are uttering something. But that's certainly not attributable to the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm trying to teach you what biblical prayers are and what they are not. And so if an individual says, well, I just like it and I'm just going to do it, well, you know, go for it. I mean, it's a free country, man. Do what you want. But because those are not biblical, they are also not effective. That's all I'm trying to say. Because they are not biblical, they are not answerable. Do you understand that? And that's what God wants us to understand. So look, face it, we're stuck. We're stuck in the flesh. We are going to pray according to our will and not according to God's will from time to time. That is going to happen, okay? But thank God my prayer life does not depend just on me. Amen? Thank God there's somebody jumping in there for me and helping me out and helping you out. Isn't that awesome? I mean, God is just so good to us, it's unbelievable. So problems facilitate prayers, which actually help. They actually work if they're biblical. All right, let's go to the fourth point. Problems also facilitate growth. And we're going to spend a little time on this, verses 28 to 30. And the first thing we're going to see is this promise of purpose. Romans 8.28, many of us would say our favorite verse in all the Bible fantastic promise of God. If you're ranking promises, this has got to be near the top, right? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Man, that's incredible. What a great promise. It does not say, and we know that all things are good. That would be ridiculous. All things are not good in this present evil world. But it says all things work together for good, right? That's an important distinction to make. Listen, little kids know, right, everything that's good for you don't always taste good, right? The stuff that tastes good isn't always the stuff that's good for you. And that's the way it is with life. Stuff that tastes good isn't always the stuff that's good for you, and the stuff that's good for you is not always the stuff that tastes good. I want you to notice with this promise in Romans 8, 28, that it's an unconditional promise. 
There is no if in that sentence. There is no condition placed on us to then have the things that happen in our life work together for good. They work together for good for everybody who's a Christian. In other words, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So take comfort in this. If you're going through trouble, if you feel like you're getting beat up, it doesn't mean that you don't love God. It doesn't mean that that there's something wrong with you and all that kind of thing. It could just mean that God has allowed some things to help you grow. And that's what we're going to see. It is to facilitate your growth as a Christian, right? So again, we'll go back to our example of Lazarus. I mentioned briefly Lazarus in John chapter 11. We saw how Jesus groaned in that whole idea of of their lack of faith in him and, and looking at themselves rather than believing in Jesus to overcome those circumstances. If you remember that story, like I kind of referred to, when the news came to Jesus and the disciples, they were in a neighboring town, please hurry, please come, Lazarus is sick, maybe unto death. The text of the scripture in John 11 is very clear, and it says, Jesus remained there yet two days, so that by the time he got to Bethany where Lazarus was, to make, to make sure that Lazarus would be, if I could say good and, dead. In other words, Jesus intentionally waited. The word, the prayers, the word got to Christ in time. And he intentionally did not go to save the day at the last minute like the Calvary. He did not do that. He waited till afterwards, okay? But what Jesus Christ undoubtedly, we've read the chapter in chapter 11 many times in our lives probably, and if you haven't, go back and read it. What is very clear in the story is that Jesus was working all of those circumstances together for the good of Lazarus and of his sister Mary and of his sister Martha and of all the disciples that were there and of all of the others that were watching what was going on when he raised him from the dead. Without question, he worked all of those circumstances together for good, did he not? The hard part in all those situations, if you're, if you're Mary or Martha, if you're the friends and you're waiting through all that, here's the hard, the hard part's waiting, is it not? You're going through a tough time and you're praying and you're begging God for something and you believe that God's going to be doing something, but it don't look like it. I mean, quite frankly, it just doesn't seem like it. And the waiting is the tough one, isn't it? But the promise is unconditional. It doesn't say, I'll do this if you wait. It doesn't say, I'll do this if you respond. It doesn't say, I'll do this if anything. It just says, I'll do this. This is what God does. He's going to use it for good. But I want you to understand verse 28. Because verse 28, as awesome as it is, is not a standalone verse. Romans 8, 28 cannot possibly be understood accurately taken out of the context of Romans 8, 29 and 30. We've got to understand 29 and 30 if you're ever going to really understand verse number 28. And that's really important because in verses 29 and 30, God is going to explain to us how all things work together for good. And the first thing we're going to see about this issue of growth is our growth, we grow to the point where then we have the character of Christ. And that's the next point in your notes. The character of of Christ in the first half of verse 29 it says for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate what to be conformed to the image 
of his son to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the good that God is working. That is what God is using the problems in your life to mold. That you would become less like you and more like Jesus every single day. That is the good that God and only God could possibly do works in your life. It gives you a whole different perspective on problems. That's why eventually you can even learn, like the Apostle Paul, to rejoice in them. Because God is using them to make you more like Jesus. The same promise is phrased differently in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is an unconditional promise. You who are saved, you who have received the gift of salvation, that good work is your salvation. It has begun in your spirit. It is being refined in your soul through practical sanctification, and it will be ultimately on full display at your glorification. It is an ongoing process, but it will happen. Your salvation is eternally secure. You couldn't possibly lose it. It's very, very clear. And that is the good work that he has done in you, and he is working it all the way until the very end. In that discussion, in verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. We got to talk about foreknowledge and predestination. And so we are specifically, I want you to understand, the greater context of this passage is dealing with problems. The greater context of this passage is having your perspective adjusted what the Holy Spirit does and how God works these things together for good for you on a daily basis. But he uses words that, again, once again, we talked about the groanings which cannot be uttered. That's a, prop, that's a popular false teaching. We have to talk about it. Foreknowledge and predestination is another popular misused set of words. So we've got to talk about it for a second. Foreknowledge, defined. God knows what you're going to do before you do it. That's what it is. God knows what you're going to do before you're going to do it. Who doesn't believe that? Right? He's outside of time. He's got it figured out. Right? But predestination is God determines what you're going to do. He makes you do it. Okay? That's an entirely different thing. He's going to make it happen. Whether God imposes his will and makes it happen is entirely different from whether he lets you decide and he just happens to know the end game before it even gets started. Do you see that? That's the difference between foreknowledge and predestination. Now, biblically, if you study the word predestinate, it's only in two places. It's here in Romans 8, and it's in Ephesians chapter 1. And God never in the Bible, never predestinated anybody to salvation. Never. We're going to talk more about this in weeks to come, but I'm introing it here. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, for example, the phrase is this. It says that the believer is predestinated to the adoption of children. Well, we just spent the last couple of Sundays, if you've been with us, talking about the definition of adoption, right? It's about our glorified bodies. It's about our inheritance. It's about rewards. That's what it's about, right? An adopted son can't be removed from the inheritance. That's what it's all about. It's not that he made me get saved. 
He had predetermined before the foundation of the world that you are chosen to go to heaven and you are chosen to go to hell. That's a very popular teaching. It, it's, it's usually connected with a man who was one of the reformers in the Protestant Reformation named John Calvin. And a lot of the theology today is referred to as reformed theology. It's gaining popularity that doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it right. The Bible's really clear that predestination, listen, you got to get this, predestination, biblically, is only operative after salvation, not before. you got to get that. Predestination is a real biblical thing. God talks about it, but it comes into play after you make your choice to be a Christian. Now he has predestinated you to finish that work because now he steps in and he says, I'm going to make sure that the work that I began in you based on your free will choice will absolutely finish. He will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ, the rapture of the church. That's how predestination works. Once you choose, now you have chosen to be in Christ. And once you are in Christ, you're going to end up just like Christ one day. Whether you like it or not, <laughs> congratulations. Because he has predetermined that everyone who chooses him He's going to take it all the way to the end. There's nobody stuck on second base halfway on this game. You're making it home, man. I mean, it's over. You're going to get there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 2. The phrase that's often used interchangeably is the, to be elect or elected. 1 Peter 1 and verse number 2. It says, elect, Peter is writing to his audience. This is the intro to the whole book. And he's writing to these people who he calls the elect. Notice, according to to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So they are elect. But how in the world did that happen? Well, it's according to the foreknowledge of God. In other words, God gives you free will to choose. And when you do, okay, you chose me, I choose you right back. It's the only nice thing to do, right? It's kind of like when somebody gets married, right? I'm going to marry you. Well, you're going to marry me back. That's handy. That's, that's the way it should be, right? That's the way we ought to do it. I mean, that's what God does. He knows what you're going to choose because he's outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning. There's a couple of places in Isaiah, I have the references down for you, where it says that God declares the end from the beginning, he sees it all. God is outside of time. Time is a temporary entity. It, we don't understand it. For us, everything that exists is within the context of time. But God clearly is eternal. It's one thing to say that he's eternal for the future, but he's eternal in the past, which pff, blows my mind. Everything we understand about everything in life had a beginning. We maybe can wrap our minds around the fact that we won't have an end. But never having had a beginning ever? Blah, blah. That's God. Only God does that, right? But that's who he is. He's outside of the whole realm of time. The fact that when God looks at time, and let's just say 6,000 years, okay, it's just like this little cup. And he's like, yeah, I got it. I mean, I see. I see the whole deal playing. I got it all. I got it all figured out. He knows exactly what you're going to do does not mean that he makes you do it. You have to understand that. That's the point. What, that's the point. You're in a process of growing in your Christian life, right? And God uses problems to facilitate that growth. And this process does not take place without your willing participation. Amen? 
This process of your spiritual growth and development will not take place automatically without your willing participation. The fact that God already knows what you're going to freely choose to do makes no difference whatsoever. So ultimately, right, this whole idea, the character of Christ conformed to the image of his son. According to Colossians, Jesus Christ is the image of God, right? So the process of growth is to make you godly. That's what it is. Here at First Baptist Church, we have what we call the path of growth. Out in the lobby, there's four big circles on the wall. You can take a look at that. Our ministry tools and training classes that are going to kick off here in the fall are are step number three of the four steps there. We have a path that we have charted that cooperates with God's path as revealed in his word. There is a process. It has designated steps, and the designated steps have to be taken in a specific order. If you get them out of order, you will not achieve the proper growth. Those steps are delineated for us in the scripture, and we have built our path of growth at FBC according to the biblical path of steps that God uses to raise his children. That makes sense, right? That's what you pay me to do. That's what we do for you. We provide this path. Now, you can get on the path or not. That's up to you, but it's available for you. And there's several places. I want to point out a couple of them to you to get the idea of what we're seeing in this passage right here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And besides this, giving all diligence, here it starts, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. In other words, you don't add knowledge to faith, you add knowledge to virtue. They come in order. Add to your faith virtue, add to virtue knowledge, add to knowledge temperance, add to temperance patience, add to patience godliness. There are seven steps, if you read verse 7 it goes on, there are seven steps of growth that go beyond your faith in Jesus Christ. Godliness is number five. Number five. There are four things that have to take place if you are really going to grow to be a godly individual. Okay, we teach you all about that in our ministry tools and training classes. The thing I want you to see for our purpose this morning is this. In this list, 2 Peter 1.6, patience precedes godliness. Do you see that? Patience precedes godliness. Keep that in mind. Romans chapter 5, verse number 3. And not only so, But we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. So tribulations or troubles or problems precede patience. And patience precedes godliness. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. By the way, are we not beginning to understand how it's possible to count it all joy now? Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing, or lacking nothing. So in other words, problems develop patience. Patience develops perfection or godliness, the image of Christ. And when we see that, We can count it all joy. We can count it all joy. That's how God uses the problems for your good. 
But we're not done because I want you to see not only how he uses them for your good, but why he uses them for your good. Because it's not just for our personal enjoyment. Because the more we're like Christ, face it, life is better. (laughs) But it's not just to enjoy that. Although that's fine. It's the next point, and it's this. It's not just the character of Christ, it's the number of Christians. The number of Christians. Because it goes on in the second part of verse 29, and it says that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God wants to make us like Christ so that we will lead the way for many others to eventually be like Christ. You see that? Now, we don't have time to do it. There's a lot of material this week, and so just very briefly, I'm going to throw out some references. In the Old Testament system, some of you will recall this, some of you may not. Roll with me, okay? In the Old Testament system, there was this thing about the blessing of the firstborn. And the firstborn in the Old Testament system was always the oldest male child. Sorry, ladies, it's just that's the way it was. And the oldest male child inherited double, a double portion of the inheritance of the family of every other child. That's just the way it was, okay? And it was really important that the firstborn gets this blessing of the father, right? And so it worked out. In fact, it was so important that ultimately when God was going to take Israel and set them free from the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt and he had all the plagues and nothing ever worked to ultimately have Pharaoh let the people go free and worship God until the last plague was what? The death of the firstborn. I mean, it was that big of a deal. That instituted the entire Old Testament feast and celebration of the Passover. It's all about preserving the blessing of the firstborn. But if you're a Bible student, you're aware of the fact that there's a couple of times in the Bible where the secondborn got it and the firstborn didn't. The first one was Esau and Jacob. And they were twins, but Esau came out first and Jacob came out second. And I don't need to recount the whole story to you, but ultimately Jacob with his mother, they planned this scheme, you know, with Isaac getting old and they snuck Jacob in there because Isaac was blind and didn't know and he faked him out like he was Esau and made the bowl of soup for him and all that. And he steals the firstborn blessing, but it's official, okay? And so Jacob gets the blessing and Esau doesn't. He's just kind of stuck with the leftovers and life's not as great for Esau as it is for Jacob. Later on down the road, Jacob has a whole slew of kids and one of them is really famous named Joseph. And Joseph goes off to Egypt and um, this is a way fast version, right? He saves the world from famine and all this stuff. Ultimately, because they thought he was dead, ultimately reunited with his father and his brethren and they all moved to Egypt and saves the day. Jacob's old and he's dying and Joseph has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob's old and he can't hardly, you know, sit up and sitting on the side of his bed and and Joseph is waiting for this firstborn blessing thing. And he comes up to Jacob and he wants grandpa to give his sons the blessing and and he puts Manasseh on Joseph's left hand so Jacob facing him will have Manasseh the oldest on his right hand. And Ephraim on his, Joseph's right hand, so it'll be on Jacob's left hand, because it's the right hand of passing on the blessing to the child. I'm not trying to bore you. Listen, it's just the way it is. So Jacob, recognizing what's going on when the children come forward, crosses the hands. Joseph says, wait, 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 wait. The oldest is on this side. And Jacob says, I know. And he passes on the blessing to the secondborn, Ephraim, 
not Manasseh. And if you ever read that and you're wondering, what's that all about? Well, this is what that's all about, okay? Because ultimately, check this out. Jesus Christ is the firstborn among many. He himself is the firstborn. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Why is that important? Because Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, that by whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He is the firstborn from the dead. Because Jesus Christ suffered, we get to get in on salvation. Is that awesome? We get to get in on it because he led the way. Him leading the way required some difficulties on his part. Did they not? Is that an understatement? He is a firstborn. Now, likewise, as we grow in our Christian life, God says, I want you to grow and be more like Christ. Why? So that you also will be the firstborn among many brethren. The firstborn suffers so that others may profit. Jesus suffered so that we could get in on salvation. And you go through suffering. You go through trials. You go through tribulation. You go through bad treatment. You go through problems in your life and you handle them and you have the perspective that you need to have that God is working all these things for good to be more like Christ so that you can lead many others to that blessing. Do you see that? Here's the lesson. This is your notes. Spiritual growth is the means to the intended end of spiritual reproduction. Do you see that? Spiritual growth and Christ-likeness, you would think that's the end. It's not the end. Your growth and development is not the end in itself. Your growth and development is a means to an end, and the end, at least for as long as we're on this earth, while there's still a chance to win other people to Christ, is for the intended end of reproducing the life of Christ in others. It's not just the character of Christ, it's the number of Christians. Do you see that? We need to increase the number of people who are Christ followers. So we suffer now so that others can be blessed. And what you do what you choose, how you choose to react, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. Let's look real quick at verse number 30. We're not really going to study verse 30, but I want to point something out. Because again, verse 30 sends people off in a tailspin sometimes in this world of election and calling and predestination and all that kind of stuff. And I just want to point something out to you with verse number 30 and we'll be done. There's a list in verse number 30. It really starts in verse number 29. There are five items listed that have to do with your salvation, these different aspects. Foreknowledge, predestination, being called, being justified, and being glorified. Okay? And what you need to understand, that Romans 8.30 is not intended to be a chronological order of events. There's no way possibly that Romans 8.30 could be a chronological order of events because there are multiple other places, and I've thought about giving them all to you, but we're just going to run out of time. But there's a lot of lists 
of things using these words in the scripture referring to your salvation, and every time you see them, they're in a different order. You can't think that that's the order, right? Let me just give you one. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. This one everybody's heard of, right? Many are called, but few are chosen. Does that not give you the idea God is calling many, and of those many, some are chosen? In other words, the calling comes first, then the choosing. That, that's what you would instinctively think of that, right? Well, the calling and the choosing, in that case, the calling is first and the choosing is second. Well, not in Romans 8.30, they're this way. In other words, you can't put the stock in the order in which they are mentioned. Romans 8.30 is in there just to reinforce to you that God who is doing all of these great things, he does each of these. These are all included in the list. Okay? They're all included in the list. And you might say foreknowledge indeed is first because he knew before you ever did it. And you might indeed say that glorification is last because after that there is no more. But the ones in the middle, really, they, they come and go in different orders depending on how you want to look at it. The intention is not to be in order. They're just a statement of the fact that they're all in there. I do want you to notice in verse number 30. It says, let me just read it so I don't get it wrong. Look at the wording. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, like it's a done deal, right? Them he also called. Past tense on all of these. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, Notice, them he also glorified. Anybody in here already glorified? Nobody in here is glorified? Right? We're still stuck in this body. But God refers to it like it's a done deal in the past tense because he knows it already, because it is a done deal in his mind, because he set the thing in motion, and once you chose Christ, you are on a path that will absolutely 100% take it to the bank guaranteed lead to glorification. You're in, man. It's a done deal. Even the glorified part is referred to in past tense. Isn't that awesome? Emphasizing more is foreknowledge than anything else. All right, so if all this called, predestinated, elected thing is freaking you out just a little bit, just hang on. Y'all, when we jump into Romans 9, I mean, just bring comfy clothes, okay? Because we're going to be here for a while. We'll get to it later when we get to that in more detail, okay? But that's enough for today. Listen, just think about it. Just for, the, just for the current day's message. Really, really, y'all, think about this. Where would we really be without problems? You think it'd be awesome, but the fact of the matter is we're still in this flesh and we would just be ridiculously selfish because our problems do a lot for us. We don't like them. They like us? I don't know. God uses them. Here's what you have to realize with your perspective on problems. This thing we call life, listen, I know, I know. This is hard for Bible-believing Christians to get. Forget other people. This thing called life, y'all, is so much greater than the here and now. And we say we believe it, but yet we live it daily as though it's only now. We live daily as though the physical death of a saint is a terrible tragedy, but really it's just moving on to the thing we've been waiting for. Life is eternal, and we just are living a little bit of it now. And we've got to have the eternal perspective. And that's all he's trying to say. That's what he's trying to help us understand. And when you get that perspective on your problems, man, then you can make the choices that really matter, that affect 
your life and, and rapid pace of growth, but how you influence others as well. By the way, your rewards for a thousand years to, as well. So the next time you're going through troubles, can I encourage you just to consider this little phrase? Years ago, I, I, I got this, and I, I think about it a lot. When you're going through tough times, just consider this phrase. This is just another opportunity to trust the Lord. If, if, I, didn't, I should have put that in your notes. You can write that down. Seriously, this is just another opportunity to trust the Lord. Listen, if, if you're suffering today, I hurt with you. We should pray for each other because it helps. And we should pray biblically for God's will. And we don't always know what that is, but thank God for the Holy Spirit who does know and prays with us and for us and helps us with that. And know that whether you understand it today or not, God is using these things for your good. And he's using them for your good because you're going to be more like Christ and as a result, lead more people to him. And as a result, get more rewards and glory and just enjoy eternity even more. Listen, this is all good. Life in Christ is the only life. And if you're here today and you have never known that, if you're here today and you had no idea that this is Christianity, listen, understand this, God loves you and the invitation is extended to you. You can receive Christ as your Lord and Savior today, right now. Many of you would say, I've already done that. Maybe today's the day that you just finally repent of whatever it is that's been plaguing you and surrender to allow God to do his work and let him work that good work in you, whether you happen to understand it or not. Believe him. That's what really counts. Let's pray together. And Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would change us. I pray for each and every Christian here that we would each take stock of our own lives and we would consider how we have been dealing with the troubles in our lives. It comes into all our lives. And I do want to sincerely pray for my brothers and sisters that are suffering because, wow, it, it's hard. I pray that you'd give them grace. I pray that you'd give them peace. I pray that you'd give them strength. Those are biblical things. I pray that you'd give them a good perspective. I pray that they would respond the way you would have them to respond. I pray that your name would be glorified. I pray that people would come to know you. I pray for comfort. I pray, Lord, that you would do whatever you need to do to work these things through our lives because you're using them for good and for that we praise you. We rejoice. We thank you. We even count it all joy. We really, really do. But Lord, there may be some people here who don't know you. They don't know that they're saved. They don't know that if their life ended today that they'd have a home in heaven. And Lord, if they recognize that today, it's not by chance. It's not by anything else other than your Holy Spirit is drawing them. You have presented your truth to them and they feel convicted. I pray if there's people like that that they would just surrender their hearts right now. They would just cry out to you and ask for forgiveness. That they would say something like, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Man, my life's a mess. I, I, I repent of my sins. I turn from them. I, I come to you and I beg you, Lord, please just forgive me my sins. Come into my heart and my life and give me new life. I need eternal life. I need a fresh start. I've blown it. You're everything. I give it all to you. I don't even know what that means, but I give it all to you. I hold nothing back. You're everything. I want what you have. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, and I'll follow you all the days of my life. Lord, I pray for people that would sincerely do that today. And I pray we'd never be the same, that as a result of being revolutionized in our heart and seeing problems the way that you see them, that we would be more like you and that we would affect many others to come to know you. We pray these things with joy in your holy name. Amen.